Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me. You know, for most of us, the inbox is so full with stuff all the time. And people are sending us articles, people are sending us missives, people are sending us communications. But every once in a while, something comes across your screen and you go, whoa, I need to read this. And then you read it and you go, whoa, again. And for me, that was about a month ago when I read an article by Stephen Marsh. He writes about the next civil war. This was an article based on his book, and I have asked him to come uh, to speak to us about it. Uh, Before Stephen came on, I told him that it's a terrifying book, and you will hear why. Ultimately, it's a hopeful book if we uh, make it hopeful, uh, but there's a larger conversation uh, that goes with all of that. Stephen Marsh is a contributing editor at Esquire magazine. He's a novelist, he's an essayist, and he's a cultural commentator. He has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He's authored half a dozen books, including The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Maybe we'll have to have him come back on to talk about that one, and The Hunger of the Wolf. We're here today to talk about his newest book called The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful to you. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So I just mentioned, and I had said to you personally as well, that the book is somewhat terrifying. So we want to start with that. According to your book, we are closer um, to the beginning of what could be a violent civil war than the average American seems to realize. And in your book, you go through the facts. Um, And that's really what I'd like you to lay out first. Who are these people? What do they represent? And what is the power that they have? You know, the, the, one of the most you know, potent aspects of the book is you talk about the, the guns they have. You talk about the plans that they have. Uh, these people are not kidding. Um, and um, I, I want to start with just a quote that you wrote that I thought was very powerful. He says, they hate the government, but they love the country. The intensity of their hatred for government is how they express their love for their country. They believe that the federal authority is destroying the true America. Who are they and what are their plans? Well, they're, I mean, they're the anti-government patriot movement. Um, that's a thats a broad term for, you know, the problem with trying to deal with uh, these people intellectually is that they fragment and reform all the time. So to give any kind of like, if I were to write a description in this book of the state of the far right six months ago, it would be completely uh, dead by now. Like it's already, it's already, uh, uh, it's already changed and it's fragmenting and reforming all the time. Um, there are certain consistent aspects of it. Um, so that, that quote, I think explains the general tenor and the general sympathy here, which is that they're pro America, like deeply American, but they also hate government and not just this government, but like any government, like you hear them say things like property tax is slavery. Um, and which, you know, leads to the question of, you know, who then is free. Um, but, you know, I, I think they also come in like different kinds of varieties. So there's like and, and they all have different aspects to them. So there's like seventh, Second Amendment absolutists, like people who believe in true gun freedom. There's a tax of abolitionists, people who don't want any tax. There's white nationalists. There's Christian nationalists. There's white power movement. 
which is, and these are all quite separate. There's the Nazis, there's the accelerationists, there's sagebrush rebels, there's sovereign citizens. And I, I, I sort of describe it at one point in the book as like a, like a buffet, like a big smorgasbord. Like if you're from the far right, you can come and you can take from each of these. Um, and you can, and you can also sort of like, not take from any of them. Um, okay. So there are black sovereign citizens. There are uh, white power people who certainly don't believe in the Second Amendment. It, mm-hmm. it's, there's a huge variety, but their their intellectual incoherence, like the fact that they're so broken and fragmented, should not be confused with a lack of power because they're growing and they're they're quite sizable. Although the okay. precise number is quite hard to get at, but uh, certainly in the millions and tens of millions. Yeah, that's the, their numbers is part of the big big part of the story here, and we'll get to yeah. that in a moment. Let's go back a little bit. All of the individual identities that you just described, mm-hmm. the vast majority of them, if not all of them, yeah, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, we would have said, yeah, we have a few of those nutcases. When and how did they coalesce into this? field of energy what what brought them together was it was it politicians was it social media what 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 made it become one big movement rather than just disparate pieces of fringe ideologies well you know they were always kind of connected but you know they they never like what what caused them to really rise and have like mainstream appeal and like rise from as you say like you know Texas separatists 20 years ago were uh you know arre- were were in firefights with the police in rural Texas like they were not a serious movement Texas separatist movement now is really they're a serious movement with serious people who are you know intellectually vigorous and like and they, they have plans like they're not you know and the nazis that i meet here are not you know born to lose tattooed on their chest they have like law degrees and they have you know they're they if you, you ask them a question like well how would you run your white ethno state in the northwest and they say well we'd model our constitution on japan's and then they can give yeah. you like diff, diff, but the root of it if you want the root of it all it's yeah i want i wanted what i'd like here is to take some of the chronology because otherwise it's too right. hard to wrap your head around so what yeah. happened how did how did this become the larger well, how did they, they all, all get date, together they all date from 2008 like the the rise the, the rise of all of these movements like every historian i talk to everyone at the southern poverty law center etc um, that's the that's the origin point for this new movement. Um, okay, so, so that, 2000, 2008 has three things. I think. I mean, you probably actually have some insight into this too. But to me, there's there's three things. There's the surge in Iraq that fails. There's the housing crisis, which is the big one. I mean, that's where that's where sovereign citizenry really spikes, and that's where. And then, of course, there's the election of Barack Obama and like a multicultural iconography taking over the country and their reaction to that, which is you know. Uh, resistance. But I mean, you know, what, what, and then also like the rival, the arrival of the Tea Party that, that emerges out of the failure of the Republican establishment. There are a lot of things going on, but I will say the, the, the expert opinion really focuses on 2008 as the origin point. Okay. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is that out of the people who were part of the insurrection uh, on January 6th, Many of them were business owners, fairly well-to-do people, people who were doing okay in their lives. It wasn't that their economic conditions had gotten worse. It's that multi- a multicultural population around them had had fared better. 
And so there's this sense of a, a, a fear of kind of psychic annihilation, a fear that the America that they think is the real America, which is the white America, the Christian America, is somehow going to be overwhelmed and overridden by a multicultural pluralistic identity is is that going on yeah. here? Yeah, I mean, there was a fascinating study of the people of January 6th, and, you know, only about, I think it was 15 to 20 percent were allied even remotely with the militias. It's mo- But the one thing that really stuck out is they're all from counties where there'd just been a rise of uh, black and Latino people uh, into those counties. Um, you know, one of the studies that I looked at that I found most fascinating was about, um, was from India. And it's about, well, it actually was English economists, but it was about it was about Hindu Muslim expenditure rates and, and Muslims are sort of the lower class group in, in India. And as, as they, as their expenditure rates reach Hindu levels, that's where the violence starts. So what you have is not, and this, you, this is something you see everywhere in the world. You see it in India, you see it in Africa. It's not unique to the specific racism of the United States, right? Like it, when you have an overclass and then you have people rising up, the overclass reacts violently. That, that tends to happen all over the world. And of course, you know, it's so tragic because, I mean, what, what we're seeing right now is the fact that black and Latino Poverty rates are their lowest rates in history. And that's the fact that could break the country, which is really upsetting. Say that again. Well, as the like what revolution, you know, when No, I heard that part. I heard that part about the overclass. But what you just the very last sentence you said that the Well, you have you have African-Americans and Latino-Americans rising to power, rising to economic power and also political power. In 2040, America is going to be a a majority minority country. And, uh, you know, as those groups rise, it's not that white people are losing because they're not. It's just that they don't have it's just that they're not comparatively more important than the people below them as they were. Right. But then and I so, don't know about that, Stephen, because the entire middle class has been losing. The entire middle class has been hollowed out over the last 40 years, not by blacks or Latinos or any cultural group. It's been hollowed out by the corporatist agenda. And yeah. I think well, inequality is a people- huge factor, too. I mean, inequality Pardon? is a huge inequality is a huge yeah, factor in in this in this thing. I mean, America does have rates of inequality that are the largest since 1776, right? Like they are like it is now at a point where you're outside of all historical models, right? right. And so, so and so it's very hard to know what that what that happens. But you know, I mean, it's America. Many things are going on at the same time. So tell me what these, you know, you talked about how, and you you speak in the book about how you would talk to these well-dressed, well-educated people and say, well, how are you going to do this? And they talk about something like the Constitution of Japan, how they're going to break up, uh, make Oregon and other parts of the West. One, I think you have a model, you have a map in the book where, well, wait, I want to go back though, because I still want some chronology. So what are these people's plans and one of the scariest things about the book is their ammunition, the guns that well, they have, the, the, the military-grade uh, ammunition that they have. What are their plans, and how do they plan to effectuate their plans? Well, they're, they're planning for, like, they, they fantasize about a civil war. Um, you know, rarely would I say it is them causing the civil war. It's that a civil war happens and that they need to respond to it. Um, they have, there are accelerationists who believe that we're just trying to end the Republic as quickly as possible because they believe that will lead to, uh, you know, uh, 
a white state or other states and they just are sick of the United States. Um, How many but there's also total incoherence, right? Like we're talking about like, like if you were to ask me, like to try and ask me to describe what their plans are implies that they have a level okay. of planning that they probably, that it would be, you know, probably incorrect to ascribe to them. How many people are we talking about, Stephen? Well, it's very hard to know. Um, you know, like, like, for example, I mean, it, the sovereign citizen movement, they do have a sense of it from the people who refuse to pay their taxes and the, out of principle. That's that's about 600,000 people. But that's a bare minimum number for that. That's from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, you know, the the or the Oath Keepers had a 40,000 membership list, but those are people who signed cards. Those are people who like politically identified, gave their address, gave their, you know, gave their details to belong to a militia. So that's like, that's a very different group than, you know, just the widespread sympathetic parts. I mean, you know, sympathy to the all right was 11 million at, at one point. Like that was one relatively decent poll out of Virginia. Um, but also it's, it, you know, it's very hard to tell. Like when you have, the Republican Party saying that January 6th is legitimate political discourse. Um, you know, do you count those people among the people who uh, think violence is legitimate response to American political system? Um, you know, the, it's a huge spectrum. So, you know, one thing about this book is I try to be absolutely precise as I can be about everything. I don't think there's any need to fear monger. I don't think there's any need to exaggerate because things are absolutely scary enough as they are. But, you know, with these, there's certainly, like, for, to give you an example, the weathermen who, like, you know, tormented. There were a thousand people, you say, in the book. Maybe it was a thousand. a thousand people. Like, the the Black Panthers at their peak probably were 10,000. But that's, that's a, I mean, that's the upper end of the estimate of how many people were the Black Panthers. And they, and, and, and so that, and, you know, and think of the chaos that caused in the spirit. I mean, we're dealing with multiple orders of magnitude larger than that currently um you know like i would say sympathy towards them maybe as much as a third of the country um actual active members several million that I would mean, be my that would be my estimate so so you're saying that people who are advocating the violent overthrow of the u.s government mm -hmm. already have the sympathy of a third of americans I, well, I wonder if I'm underrating that number. I mean, you know, one stats, there was a poll recently that said 36% believe that violence against the government is sometimes justified. But, you know, that's one of those poll questions where it's like, well, do you mean of all time? Or like, are you talking, what, what does that actually mean? Like when you get down to specific cases? But, you know, when you have a major party saying that January 6th is legitimate political discourse, I mean, like, that's violence. Like, that's, that, a police officer died, right? Like, yeah. uh, you, you know, like, that, that's, that's the advocacy for violence on a, on a, on a, on a mainstream. I mean, the only word for that is mainstream, right? So, you know, uh, like, yeah, I think, I think the normalization of violence and also the sense of, and then you also have the question of the erosion of faith in the political system, which is kind of the other side of this coin. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, is everyone. Only 20% of Americans believe that their electoral system is fair. So, you know, that, when you talk about, like, incipient civil war, I mean, those are the, the markers of it, where you have, you know, a rising tolerance for violence among the body of people, and you have a declining faith in institutions. And America, you know, definitely has both of those right now. 
So one of the things in the book that's very impactful, to say the least, is how many guns these people have. One mm. of the things you say in the book is forget gun control. I mean, it's too late. The guns just saturate this this society at this point. You say in the book that the most popular gun is the AR-15. You talk about the ghost guns. It's just no way to even track. Um, yeah. But you say all the way up to small dirty bombs i mean uh, dirty nukes that these people could have talk to me about the kind of ammunition well they've been caught multiple times with low-grade nuclear weapons i mean like they're dirty bombs they're like americium they're not you know they're not plutonium they're not gonna you know set a city on fire but you know they, and then the two guys they caught one in maine and florida was completely by accident like it was one of them was because he killed his wife and the other one was because um, his, his roommates killed each other. So it's the only reason they found the fissile material. But, you know, there's no question in my mind that there's like a lot more like low grade nuclear material in the hands of domestic terrorists. I mean, I, I don't think that's really in doubt. So tell yeah. Me and then, of course, you have weapons like, you know, you have the usual weapons like, you know, there's certainly there's certainly people with tanks out there. Right. And there's certainly tanks. people with yeah, tanks like, you... like tanks. Okay. Like there, there, there are very, very armed people. So, you were mentioning before the weathermen, for instance, and Mm -hmm. the FBI and U.S. intelligence came down on them very, very strongly. I would argue that the chaos that resulted had more to do with the governmental response than than from what these people actually um, were offering. But it seems now, with the people that you're describing, the opposite is the case, that the government has gotten onto it a little too slowly? Well, they have. They face a bunch of problems. I mean, like, you know, I definitely think you can fault the F. It's easy to fault the FBI and say they didn't take it. But, you know, they have been ringing the bell pretty hard. Like, yeah. most of the reports in here I get are from the FBI. Like, it's not like it's not like they are not aware of this problem and they, and, or they haven't been reporting it in a very clear way. Um, but it's only in the past two weeks that the Department of Justice has put out a, uh, you know, it has decided to set up its own domestic terrorism uh, unit. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that's most frightening in the book is how m- much of our um, police forces, particularly the sheriffs, network of sheriffs, is infiltrated by these people. You talk in the book about how the FBI doesn't even want to share its watch, list, watch lists, which is it would can't. be the normal way that they would go about doing this, is they would tell the sheriffs, watch out for these people. But in this case, the sheriffs might say, no, he's my friend. I, I'm not going to watch him. I'm going to warn him. Uh, well, I, I don't think the, the sheriffs they would the sheriffs they would never share with, but the like the the because they're like a separate. Okay, I'm sorry. So they're a separate unit, but like the it's the because it's even more troubling. It's the police departments. Like you, they've found white power movement people in the police in hundreds of police departments across the United States. The FBI does not share watch lists with them for exactly the reason you said that they, uh, you know, they immediately it gets filtered out and the people just disappear. And watch lists are the number one counterterrorism measure, right? Like they are the they are by far the most effective uh, counterterrorism measure. So you know, like I have a lot of faith in the FBI. I think they're actually. Pretty, pretty tough and pretty brilliant, but um, it's going to be a generational struggle to get domestic terrorism out of police departments, much like it was a generational struggle to get the mafia out of police departments. And it's, you so, know, it's it's hurt when, you know, it's hurt when every time a Republican comes into power, they immediately shut down all the investigations. That doesn't, that doesn't help either. 
So did the white power movement, clearly they did. They very deliberately began infiltrating the police and they began also infiltrating the U.S. military? Michael German, who's the FBI source, who was undercover for 20 years in white power movements, um, he said that he would show up and once once they knew he had no tattoos, they were like, okay, we're not, you're not going to talk to anyone who's ever been in prison again. We're going to run you for school board and we're going to move you up that way. And, and, and he says, that's exactly what they've done. And, you know, when you, when the Oath Keeper list came out, I think it was three months ago, like they were everywhere. They were in the police departments. They were in school boards. They were dog catchers. They were, they were everywhere in elected office in the United States and they were, as well as police departments. They were everywhere. So yeah, I mean, they're very strategic. Right. They're like, they're, they're like, they are, these are not, you know, jailhouse Nazis. These are people with a plan and, uh, and, and, and a very effective plan. They, I mean, unlike the left, they really understand the power of controlling institutions, you know, and like, and building through and building through institutions, including and, elected and, office, including elected office and including of the, in, within the system that they plan to bring down. Well, where, where else would you bring it down from? Right. Exactly. Uh, from the like, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's their plan and they're they're executing it. OK, so do they want to break up the country to in order to establish this white ethno state? Uh, what are they going to do and what would this white ethno state look like and where would the rest of us go? Well, to be frank with you, like I asked all those questions many, many times. Um, I would say the vision of the white ethno state would fall under the category of science fiction to me. Like it was not like it was not a practical goal. Um, and as for what they want, they want freedom. And they define freedom, their definition of freedom. I mean, I'm a Canadian, so I guess I'm like an institutional guy. Like I, you know, like, like, you know, it, to me, government exists to give you freedom. It's not the opposite of freedom. But um, but for them, like literally, I think any control, like any any federal control over the lands in the West, you know, would be considered uh, Ill totally illegitimate. Um, they were they're they're in the grips of a you know fundamentalist version of American liberty, which is a fundamentally to me anyway un unfathomable, like undoable. Like unrealizable. Um, and so like when you ask about like the specifics of the plan, it gets very vague, very fast. You know, the one thing they do want is they want the government out of everything. Okay. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is what happens if the United States, you said that one of the ways that this could go is that secession occurs. You were talking about the Texas secessionist movement. I think um, if I remember the map, there's Oregon, Washington, and California form one country. Yeah, and I Texas mean, I forms was just a country. Spitballing. Yeah, I mean, what, t tell us where you come up with this idea of us becoming four countries, and why would that help? Well, you know, to me, when marriages get to the state that the United yeah, States is just, in, let's just have a divorce. Let's you sit the kids down, and you. But say, these like, people you know, are everywhere. So how would splitting up well, the country help? There are. There are definite massive geographic differences. Um, there are social differences that correspond to former slave states and former uh, free states uh, before the Civil War on all sorts of social questions, corporal punishment in school, church attendance, gun ownership, access to abortion, proximity, the number of gay married people, you know, uh, multiculturalism, et cetera. Like those lines are actually pretty, pretty, you can you can see them. 
um, when you do the when you look at the geography. Now that said, the political distinctions are definitely urban rural. So you know you have friends of mine who live in the Hudson Valley of New York who have you know far right people in their communities, like uh, absolutely. And similarly, if you're in Austin, you know you're in La La Land, like you're in like liberal paradise in in Austin, where we're in the middle of you know, the big red state, right? So there are definitely like geographic problems with these divisions. Um, on the other hand, I think we we are seeing a, a movement where the hyper-partisanship has gotten to the point where they, they resemble in any way ethnic distinctions in this sense that like, they don't, people don't, people don't want their children to marry outside of their party. Um, at extraordinary rates, like it's, I think it's nearly 95% of Republicans don't want their children to marry a Democrat and they don't hire each other. Right. And those numbers are much stricter in America now than race. Like they're like, they're, like they're, they're, it, people are much more willing to hire people of different races than of different parties. And so when you, when you get to that state, that what, I mean, I don't really propose anything. I just think political violence is the worst thing that can happen to a country. And so you have to look at what, uh, whether what other options there are and secession i think certainly certainly is one of them. it's massively growing in popularity right yeah, i mean 58 percent of republicans believe in it 41 percent of, of of democrats in california believe in it so it is gaining except, it at popularity except the problem is once again as you yourself just said the the division is everywhere yeah so i i mean there like there are ways of dealing with that but you know the truth of the I mean, matter I come is, from Texas, right? And right. Texas is both and. It's both you and, have but Austin, on the other Houston, hand, Houston, Dallas, very world class, very sophisticated, yeah. you know. And then you have For this sure. huge red. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, when was the last time there was a statewide Democrat win? But in, that has to in, do with the gerrymandering and all the various ways, uh, voter suppression, all the various ways that uh, yes, all I over mean, the country, a minority is grabbing power for itself and in a way that could permanentize it if we're not careful. So the and similarly, the Democrats in California, it's the same thing, right? I mean, oh, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> believe me, I'm not right. saying that the Democratic Party doesn't use the power of gerrymandering right. to its advantage when it can. Uh, but right. I think it is fair to say that the Democratic Party is not systematically engaged in voter suppression efforts. I agree with you. The way yeah. some uh, in the Republican Party are. So uh, the book spells out, once again, everyone, uh, the name of the book is The Next Civil War. And uh, it's a book that uh, we should all, you know, I highly recommend that you read this because there are facts and figures in there of what things going on in this country that most of us are not seeing. Um you know, it's not the people that you know, but it doesn't mean that they're not there or even scarier. Sometimes it is the people that you know uh, who have plans and ideas for this country that might be not only not yours, but beyond what you would consider the pale of what is necessary to keep us together uh, as one nation. Now, towards the end of the book, you do finally get to a part, Stephen, where you say, well, there's still hope because this is America and, you know, America has a way of reinventing itself and you you give proper homage to, the, you know, the high side of the American character and you say, well, you know, they could, you know, you could, could pull it off, you know, of avoiding right. this of violence. And you talk about specifics. You talk about the things that could uh could occur. You don't sound very convinced by that argument. No, I'm not. It's, it's a very small part at the end of the book. However, you do uh, write out some specifics, and I, I want to go over them. Um, you say, 
none of the crises described in this book are beyond the capacity of Americans to solve. It would be entirely possible for the United States to implement, and then you go into the specifics, a modern electoral system to restore the legitimacy of the courts, to reform its police forces, to root out domestic terrorism, to alter its tax code to address inequality, to prepare its cities and its agriculture for the effects of climate change, to regulate and to control the mechanisms of violence. All of these futures are possible. There is one hope, however, that must be rejected outright. And this is where I think you're really, to me, this is the most important line in the book, the hope that everything will work out by itself, that America will bumble along into better times. It won't. Americans have believed their country is an exception, a necessary nation. If history has shown us anything, it's that the world doesn't have any necessary nations. And that, I think, is a really good point that you make, that I think that we are moving past this idea, well, it'll work itself out. Um, I don't think it's so much that people would disagree with you, is that people are like paralyzed with fear, particularly because the things that I just mentioned that you say are the prescription for uh, repair Mm -hmm. are the very things we're trying and are being resisted mightily by yeah. not only uh, the Republican Party, but even corporatist forces in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, I like these are all very difficult. I mean, you know, in that list, which I gave, like two of them, I think there's already been some progress with. Like, I think the Department of Justice setting up this separate thing. I mean, I take great encouragement from that. And I think, you know. So um, let's just slow down for just a moment. I want to talk about that. Okay. Let's say things don't go well for Democrats. Uh, in the midterms. That's uh-huh. less than a year from now. Yeah. Let's say the Republicans get the House, the Republicans get the Senate. Yeah. They will have a lot of power not yeah. to shut down every aspect of, you know, the, Biden will still be president, the Attorney General will still be appointed by the president. But they will, I would think, have a lot of power, should they gain the House and the Senate, to obstruct the work of what we would call counter-domestic terrorism efforts. Yeah. They would. And I think they probably would do it, too. I mean, I think the the well, I mean, you know, when I saw that scene of the minute of silence for that police officer who was killed on January 6th and only Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney were there. I mean, I was just even writing, you know, I've been working on this book for five years, like but even even with all the stuff that I've been dealing with, I was shocked. I mean, that people would not give a moment of respect to a man who died protecting their physical security and their and the security of their institution. I mean, if you're not capable of getting to that level of solidarity, what what level of solidarity are you capable of getting to? And I mean, I think, you know, if if they if they feel that there's any endangerment to their own voting block by there being a Department of Justice counterterrorism, counter domestic terrorism unit, they'll just stall it they'll just they'll just crush it i don't i don't see why they wouldn't do that neither and of course needless to say if trump were elected that it would all be gone well i read that um there are 50 people running for congress in the midterms who are avowed QAnon followers right i know i mean i think we're going to look back on this time where there are only two and think yeah like that was lauren bobert and uh, marjorie taylor green so, yeah i mean this is this is what the process this book describes is this acceleration 
So what's going to keep happening is exactly this. Like you're going to start with two QAnon members and then there's going to be 30 and then there's going to be 90, you know, and then you have and then you and, and plus you're going to have a Senate where by 2040, you know, 50 percent of the population controls 85 percent of the Senate. Right. And so then then ordinary people no longer feel that they really are in a democracy because, uh, you know, that, that that's not that's not that's not a legitimate expression of the political will of the people. Um, and so and, and that's when things get really dangerous. I mean, I, that that's what ha- when other countries fall into civil war, it's exactly like that. Right. Like that's what it when it mean when it, when I say that the United States is a textbook case of a country headed to civil war, it's these processes that are that are you can see, but are you, you also kind of don't want to see that 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 tip over into violence eventually. Well, also, you talk in the book about how we should remember that civil war this time would be very different than the last civil war. The last civil war, there was the North and then there was the South. There were the guns that started firing at Fort Sumter. And then it was somewhere along the line of traditional warfare. This is who's shooting who? I mean, is it just you'd always be afraid to go out of your house because wherever you are, there might be somebody shooting? I mean, what what would it be? Well, civil wars are like the worst thing that can happen to a country. I mean, I think. I mean, I think they're worse than being occupied by a foreign power, frankly. I mean, like, like even the first civil war, which was not, you know, sectarian conflict, which is what I think a contemporary civil war would look like. It was total war on an unprecedented scale. I mean, oh, Sherman's absolutely. march to this Sherman's march to the sea was a, a, a level of brutality against civilians that has not had not been seen before. And of course, a a civil war now would be a war over the meaning of America. Uh, whether it's, you know, a liberal, democratic, uh, multicultural democracy or whether it's a white settler republic. And, you know, that would fragment, that would shatter. Uh, it, you know, essentially it would be the, like, as I imagine the civil war, ha- as it looks like now, it's not really between political sides per se. It's more between order and chaos and trying to prevent chaos and the the problem being of course as america has learned through 70 years of counterinsurgency that you know attempts to tamp down violence have a have a way of causing violence to spread and, and so you know it, it it gets very ugly very quickly and it spirals out of control very quickly talk to me about richard spencer he is the head of the nazi party here in the united states correct um, well, I don't know if that he would qualify as that. I don't know what his position is. I haven't talked to him in many years, of course. Okay. So he's uh, like he um, I mean, I talked to him in 2016 for Esquire uh, when I was there. That's what's in the book. And of course, it was um, that was before Charlottesville. Um, but, you know, he like he's a very interesting man in many ways, because I, I know some people hate me to say that um, because like we're 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 supposed. But, you know, I think he's scarier because he's charming and because he's very educated and because he um, can explain his positions coherently. Um, well, that's what I, I want to know. He's a well-educated man. He went to the University of Chicago. I think before yeah. that he went to Emory or someplace. I'm not sure, but I know University of Chicago. Um, yeah. Well-spoken. Um, what's his beef with America? Well, he doesn't, he really doesn't believe in America. So, 
you know, often what I found amazing in this book is that I would go everywhere and I would talk to all these people, radical left-wing people, Texas separatists, California separatists, and they all worship the Constitution. All of them, you know, like even even Texas separatists. I'm like, you know, in my own country, Quebec separatists, they don't worship the Canadian Constitution, right? Like they, uh, like, but the Texas separatists do. There's and, and I think there's this amazing worship of this, you know, ancient document by the New York Times as much as by Ted Cruz, right? Um, but Spencer does not worship the Constitution. Um, he thinks he thinks the shining city on the hill is a fraud. And he thinks that the American project from the beginning, I, I mean, this is my understanding of uh, from from talking with him, um, that this 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 open pluralistic project, which he sees inherent in the Constitution, is in, inherently incompatible with human reality, which he sees as a racial identification on the level of your family. So for him, you know, like I asked him once, like, well, you know, you went to the University of Chicago, you must have known some people of color that you got along with, as opposed to like, you're you're in some of these places where there's very uneducated people who are white, like, surely you must have felt some commonality with these educated African Americans. He, that, that whole idea appalled him. Uh, like, he, you know, he felt that white people were in a sense, an extended family, a, a, a biological unit um, that that he that he ascribed to. I mean, you know that that's that would be my reading of his okay. take. But of course, the other thing is it, these with as I said with the hard right generally, their opinions tend to change pretty drastically. Yeah, but I'm just still curious where are the blacks and the Jews supposed to go. Where uh, are we supposed well, to live? Somewhere, but not near him. You know, uh, like uh, I like there's you know I mean. For Some example, Spencer is Spencer is in favor of reparations, right? Like he's in, know, in favor of reparations to African Americans, right? Like he's uh, so like he's, but you know that's all that's all. Who knows what that means and what whether I'm whether he's telling me that because I you know work for Esquire or whatever. Like he like he, uh, but I you know I don't know. I mean his position to me is no more important or less important than any of the others. Like, I, yeah. and I don't think, I don't think their intellectual exercises, like they're, they're in, like, are that important, right? Like what we're dealing with here is the love of violence, as we saw in China. Well, I think it's important though, for us as citizens, sometimes it's easier to relate to an idea when we can relate to an individual and then say, oh, and you mean there are millions of them? If you just tell right. me there's an, well, if you just tell me there's Nazi ideology, uh, then I'm scared. If you tell me there's a man named Hitler and he knows how to harness it all for the purposes of taking over Europe and killing all the Jews and, and more, then I'm, then I set up even more. So I think that part of the power of the book is that you personalize it. You know, I realize there really are millions of people out there who think like this and really yeah. want those of us who are not like them to be gone and are planning to start shooting to make it happen. It's when you, you, you point out, and these are the guns that they have, and they have infiltrated police forces, and they have infiltrated the military, and now they're running for office. And, and you mentioned something just now, but I'm not sure that everybody really understood what you were saying. But they would say to anyone who thinks like them, who is not covered with tattoos, oh, we should run you for the school board. Yes. And 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 for everybody to really understand what that means, it means they wouldn't suspect you. And that's well, really what's going on. I remember reading an article of someone who was outside the Capitol on January 6th and was talking to some of those people. And 
was talking about walking along with a couple of guys, and um, they were talking about, yeah, well, you know, this obviously wasn't a time for executions, but, you know, that, that'll come soon enough. And he said, I looked at these guys. They were wearing khakis and polo shirts. They had short hair. They seemed very articulate. Um, he said, but they were serious. Oh, yeah. The execution's no, going to begin. Yeah, I mean, I... I've always gotten along with hard right people. Like when I met them and chat with them, like they're, they're nice people. They're like decent guys. Like if you, like you would, you would never think. And then you of course get to their ideology and it's completely toxic. I mean, I remember once talking to some guy and he was a white supremacist, like wanted to have his own ethno state and et cetera. He was one of these guys. And then at the end of the talk, like we're talking for an hour about like this thing, this vision of, you know, white power. And then he says, by the way, I was a huge fan of your Esquire column. I read it every month. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't know what to do with that at all. So, yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, a, a, I mean, its specific size is really hard to know, but I think think the the thing that's really important to remember is the broad sympathies for this that that allow it to give root and of course the political coverage that it's getting now which is you know much more much more friending to me because you know every country has lunatics right like every country has political fringes it's when they're given air in the mainstream and they're given yeah. they're given yeah. they're given room to yeah. move in institutions that yeah. that things get really dangerous well i know? think social media you know it's not like we've never had racists we've never had homophobes we've never had anti-semites i mean these yeah. elements have always been there but they were like uh, viruses that were asymptomatic and i think that the toxic d even deadly combination of social media and the fact that we had a president who was not above trying to harness these forces for his own political purposes just formed a diabolical brew and that diabolical yeah. brew uh was not uh eradicated it did not dissolve just because um trump lost an election um and now it seems mm -hmm. to be in fact, growing and spreading. So what I take from the book is that those of us who believe in the idea of a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, religiously pluralistic society and more, that's just one aspect of the core of what makes America an exceptional idea. We have never fully mm -hmm. embodied, we have never fully actualized these exceptional ideas. But within that, within the principles and the ideals themselves, has emerged some extraordinary energy. And I, as you say in the book, America will, the world will not be a better place if America goes down. And I've been Absolutely saying that not. for a long time as well. I mean, even some yeah. of the people who are the most understandably disgusted by America over the last few decades, uh, would be the first to admit the world will not be a better place if America goes down. So what yeah, I got this from book the, is not written out of contempt, right? This no, is a book written no, out of nor does it read that right? way. Please don't get me yeah. wrong. It does not read that yeah. way. Um, um, it is written um, with a spirit of sober warning. Uh, it, it is a sober warning, and that's why I hope that all of you will pick up this book. Um, but like I said, at the, at the end of the book, and I think you feel that from Stephen, even talking to him today, uh, it's not too late. As I say often, it's, uh, it's the 11th hour, but it is not midnight yet. And I believe that the vast majority of Americans, Stephen, do not want to go in the direction that you're talking about. But what uh, the problem we have, of course, is that the people on the alt-right who do represent a serious threat uh, to the very idea of America as we have known it, um, they are convinced, they are convicted 
they are committed, and they are armed. Yes, all of those are true. mm Hmm. And the rest of us are a little disparate, and yeah, I really want I really want things to work out. Too many cases, just assuming they'll work out, not recognizing how in what serious disrepair and even disintegration our institutions are. Um, you know, I remember, I, I find Steve Bannon a fascinating character. Uh, Steve Bannon uh, just decided, it was an entrepreneurial exercise. He said, we need to dismantle the administrative state. And then you read books like uh, Michael Lewis, uh, The Fifth Risk. I don't know if you've ever read that book. God yeah, help sure. us, he did. He found, you know, yeah. I think that Steve Bannon found Donald Trump as much as Donald Trump found Steve Bannon. And uh, they they went in there and that's exactly what they started to do. And the U.S. government has been hollowed out. Uh, the, the pillars, the institutional pillars, um, certainly uh, nothing was perfect. A lot needed to be handled, a lot needed to be changed, and a lot needs to be changed now. But um, the level of assault that we have received and are receiving to the very idea of what makes America, America. Um, is so profound. So I thank you for articulating it the way you have uh, in this book. And I hope that everybody will read this because um, what it does for me is to deepen my devotion. Um, I don't think we need a lot more data collection. I think your books Mm. and books like yours, we have the data. Uh, Now we need the courage. um, I'm glad the book resonated with you, yeah. Yeah, it resonated me. It resonated with me um, because it's so well written and so well researched, and um, puts together a lot of things that I think many of us sense is going on and hear about, but I have never seen it written down in such detail and explained within the larger context of our contemporary society the way you have. So I thank you for that. Is there anything else uh, that you want to mention uh, that you think people should hear? Of course, they need to read the book, but no, um, we didn't else? go into the whole. I, I mean, I would just say that you know, if there's any country that can find its way out of this, it's America. Thank right? you. I mean, it is the it is the great country of reinvention. It is the great country of personal reinvention and political reinvention. And you know, I know that may sound like a vague hope Mm-mm. for such a hard headed book, like such a such a like extremely realistic book but i really do believe it like i really do think that like there 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 is something in the american spirit where they have found their way to practical politics against all odds several times before in their history well, and so it, like but it, it just as you say the most important line is it's not just going to work out it's not going to be like the 60s absolutely the 70s are going to yeah. follow like that's abolition not wasn't going to just happen women's suffrage wasn't yeah. going to just happen desegregation wasn't just going to happen and as i say right. often the uh we do have a legacy of serious problems in this country as you just said but we also have a legacy of some great problem solvers and uh, we, we have a problem on our hands, and you you certainly name it. But I appreciate it. I almost it brought tears to my eyes when you just acknowledge, particularly as someone who who is a Canadian, that you acknowledge. You know, we we hear so much about what we do wrong, um, and what we have done wrong, and we're not stupid. I think we get that. Uh, but it's wonderful to hear um, someone acknowledge 
that there is something. And I felt that reading the book. I felt like there were times, no, Stephen, you don't know us. You don't know us. Just watch. Just watch. I felt that as an American a little bit. No, you just wait. You see. And I think sometimes people know, people say, well, how are we going to do it? And I don't think the first question in manifestation is how am I going to do it? The first question is, am I committed to doing it? Because once I'm committed to doing it, the how begins to appear. So maybe that'll be your sequel to the book. Yes, how America worked out, how it all worked out. <laughs> Not I'd just how it worked it. out, but you know what, the how-to to make it work out. Well, oh, I, I can't think... write that book. That you have to write that book. But if it, I, I mean, right. I would love it if the sequel You're is right. "How Wrong Was I." That'd be just terrific. No, you won't have been wrong. It will be a book about how at the last minute we pulled it out. Right, that'd be great. I love it. Let's do that. Let's book to it. To that, to that. <laughs> yeah. God bless you. Thank you so very, okay. very much. Uh, whatever you write, I'll be reading. Okay, everybody, you heard it. The next Civil War. As a conscious, serious, sober, and informed American, I highly recommend this. The next Civil War by Stephen Marsh. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Stephen. My pleasure. All my best. <laughs>